We're on. Hot, hot dog. We're, we're live. We are live. Okay. Good morning, Grace Church. As Danielle said, my name is Charlie McFarland, and I'm one of the retired pastors they let hang around here. Um, and I'm, it's been a while since I've, since I've been at a pulpit, and so, you know, forgive me if I stumble. Um, I'm a little bit nervous, I have to admit. I have to admit, but I know the Lord is with me and with all of us. And it's great to see everybody here this morning, and those of you who are joining us online. Um, let's begin with prayer. Always a good thing to bring in with prayer, Lord. We are grateful for our time together this morning. We're grateful for your word to us this morning. We pray that you would prepare our ears and our hearts, Lord, to hear what you have to say to the church. In the power of your Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord, amen. Let the church say amen. amen. Hey, let the church say amen. 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 All righty. When Daniel asked me to, to cover this Sunday, to preach this Sunday, um, and said, you can preach on anything you want, but we've, you know, we've been doing this odd but good uh, uh, sermon series. And I said, I got the perfect verse for that. I have the perfect verse for that. But it requires a little bit of history and a little bit of setup. So let me start out by giving some of my history. Uh, in 1989, I was recovering from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And... Um, and the recovery from that involved a lot of prayer. And there were two prayers specifically that I prayed on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day. And the first one was the serenity prayer. You may be familiar with this one. God grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And the other prayer is a prayer to put my life and my will into God's hands. Lord, I put my life and my will into your hands and pray for knowledge of your will for me and the power to carry that out. Deliver me from the bondage to self. Take away the character defects that get in the way of my service to you and my fellow man. And improve my conscious contact with you that I might be better enabled to know you and love you, to worship you and serve you and to do your will. Now let me tell you, that is a prayer that God loves to answer and he will answer it. He will answer it. Just hang on to your hat when he does. Um, now he may call you, I don't know what he may call you to do or to, to, to become, but I had never in my life considered becoming a preacher. Okay? But as I prayed that prayer, I began to feel God calling me to do something, but I just didn't know what yet. Trish and I were living in North Carolina and I was working for a computer company as a senior field engineer, which is a highfalutin term for a computer hardware tech. And then I was laid off in a business shift for that company and hired by a different company to, to move to Salt Lake City, Utah. And let me tell you that living among the Mormons will make you examine what you believe. And Trisha and I did that. And we began to attend a, a, a Presbyterian church there in Salt Lake City. And fairly quickly it became obvious, or it became uh, it became, began to become clear that God was calling me to ordained ministry. We were, I was in conversation with our pastor at the time, Jeff Silliman, and he happened to be the, the, committee, the, uh, the chair of the Committee on Preparation for Ministry for the Utah Presbytery. And so he began to shepherd me through that process, and that began an eight-year journey uh, that took us back to my hometown in seminary at Beeson Divinity School 
at Stanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now at Beeson, I had two preaching professors. One of them was Dr. Cal Reverend Dr. Calvin Miller. You may have encountered some of his books. He wrote many books. Uh, the other was Reverend, Doc Reverend Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. Now in Dr. Smith's class, there were 16 writing assignments for the semester. And let me say right here that in writing sermons, there is a lot of work that nobody sees except the pastor in his or her study. And I know that Brian and Danielle and Andrew can bear me out on this, that uh, it has been said that writing a sermon is like writing a 15-page research paper every week, week in and week out throughout the year. So there's a lot of work that goes into that, and that's what Dr. Smith was preparing us for. Now, and there are some passages that preachers tend to avoid like COVID, okay? <laughs> and for the sermon topics for the semester, Dr. Smith had a glass fishbowl on his desk, and there was a bunch of little folded up pieces of paper in that, in that fishbowl. And the way you got your sermon topic for the, your major sermon for the semester was you went up and you just picked a piece of paper out of that, out of that uh, glass fishbowl. And when I picked out my slip of paper and walked back to my desk and unfolded it, here's what it said. And two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 boys. And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> How can I make a sermon out of that? But God is good. And the next thought that came uh, to me was, was this. If I can preach on that verse then I don't have to fear preaching about anything in this book because God is right there with me. It's all in there for a reason. And uh, so I looked up the passage, and this is what it said. And this is talking about the prophet Elisha. And we're going to talk about Elisha and his predecessor, Elijah. Okay, the names are very close, but so if I stumble on those, uh, bear with me. He, that's Elisha, went up to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 boys. And from there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now, we don't know what, what, what Elisha said. Scripture doesn't record that for us. When I, was, when I was writing this, I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, maybe it was something like what B. Arthur's favorite line was when she was playing Maud. She would tell her, her husband, Walter, God will get you for that, Walter. So maybe so, I don't know. So maybe it's a good thing he, and, and Scripture doesn't tell us. We'd be trying that now, you know. I don't know. Anyway. So it has to go, we have to go back to the history of Elijah and Elisha. Now, Elijah was a prophet in the, uh, in the northern kingdom in Israel under the king, uh, the wicked king Ahab and uh, wicked queen Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel didn't like uh, Elijah because he wasn't a yes man. He was not a yes man. In fact, uh, Ahab called him troubler of Israel you troubler of Israel. His name, Elijah, let's see, means Yahweh is my God. 
And his job was to uh, preach against the worship of Baal. And if you remember the story, he was the one who, Elijah was the one who uh, had the showdown with the prophets of Baal, wound up killing a bunch of them. And Jezebel really got mad at him about that, sent him a little sticky note and says, this time tomorrow, prophet boy, you're dead meat. And so he did what any sensible prophet would do. He, uh, he beat feet. <laughs> he left the area. He went in and hid himself in a cave out in the desert. And three things happened there. God first said, why, what are you doing here? Why are you out here? And he said, well, they've killed everybody and I'm the only one left. God said, I've got this. I've got 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Don't you worry about it. And he said, I want you to go and do some things here. And he laid out two or three things he wanted, uh, messages he wanted to carry, wanted carried. And he said, I want you to go find Elisha, son of Shaphat, and anoint him as your successor. So he found Elisha. He found Elisha. And Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he uh, told him the message God had given. He said, you know, you're going to be my successor. And uh, Elisha, so Elisha dropped everything he had and followed, followed Elijah. Now, we don't know how long they were together or exactly what all they did. Scripture's kind of silent on that. But the next thing it picks it up, where it picks it up, is that uh, Elijah was, was getting ready to be taken up to heaven. And if you know that story, uh, it was a, a, he went up to heaven in a whirlwind. It was a fiery chariot and and, uh, and Elijah was taken up to heaven. But Elisha and Elijah were traveling together. They were traveling toward the River Jordan. And as they came to the River Jordan, uh, Elijah tried to get Elisha to stop and not go with him. Elisha said, no, I'm going with you. I'm going to be with you no matter what. So <clears throat> Elijah said, okay. He took his cloak off and he rolled it up and he smote the water with it. I love that old King James word. He smote it. It, it's, it conveys much more than the word hit. Okay, he smote the water with his cloak, and the water parted one side and the, to one side and the other. And Elisha and Elijah walked across on dry ground. When we got to, when they got to the other side, Elijah said, "You know, I'm about to be taken up to heaven." He said, "What can I do before, for you before I go?" And Elijah, Elisha said, "Let me have a double portion of your spirit." And Elijah said. I don't know. That's a hard thing you've asked. But I'll tell you this. He said, it's kind of up to God. But if you see me when I'm taken up, it will be yours. And if you don't see me, then it won't. So went on a little way, and here came the fiery chariot, the whirlwind, grabbed Elijah, took him off up to heaven. His cloak fell off onto the ground, and Elisha picked it up. And he walked back to the river, and he rolled it up like Elijah had, and he smoked the water with it, and the water parted for him just like it had Elijah. And he walked across, and there were about 50 prophets on the other side watching all this happen. And they said, surely the spirit of Elijah has fallen upon Elisha. So the next thing that, uh, that happened was uh, Elijah went to Jericho. The next place he traveled to was Jericho. Now, Jericho, they had a problem with their water. The water was bitter. They could not drink their water. It was not drinkable. And so they approached Elisha about that and said, is there anything you can do about this? He said, God can do anything. God can do anything. He said, bring me a, a new bowl and put some salt in it. 
So they brought Elisha a new bowl. They put some salt in it. He threw the salt in the water, and it became sweet. Sweet water. We have a town right down the road from here called Sweetwater. I don't know if that's where we get you today, but uh, maybe the water is very sweet down there. I don't know. Uh, it's a neat little town. Trish and I have been there several times. But, um, yeah, the water became sweet. It was a miracle, a miracle. So it was obvious that Elisha was blessed by God and was considered God's messenger. So he went from Jericho to Bethel. Now, Bethel was the place where Jacob had seen the vision of the ladder going up to heaven and angels going up and down on the ladder. And so when he woke up in the morning, he had this dream about that. He had woke up in the morning and he said, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And so he called the place Bethel, Bethel, the house of God, because that's what it means. But over the years it had changed and it had become a place of idolatry. Now there were some prophets that lived there, but, um, but it had become sort of an idolatrous place. And as Elisha was going up to Bethel, a welcoming committee came out to greet him. Now, um, Elisha had just come from performing a miracle, changing this water from bitter to sweet. And um, so it was obvious that he was, that he was God's messenger. And he, was God's, he was God's man. Scripture tells us how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. Several places in Scripture, Isaiah 52, Romans 10, Matthew 23, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. But these young men, and they were probably not little boys, okay, some of the Scriptures say small boys, some say little children. Uh, scholars think that that was a, a, a poor choice of words that these uh, boys were probably teenagers, probably close to military age. So Elisha may have been frightened about this. God may have been protecting him when, he, when this happened. But when he saw these boys come out and start jeering him, and instead of, instead of cheering him, instead of saying, here comes a guy, look at those feet, look at those feet, hey, beautiful feet, he's going to bring us God's message, bringing us God's news. They focused on a different feature. <laughs> they focused on a different feature. But here's the thing. They focused on, on, on Elisha's bald head, and what they were saying was, get out of here, baldy. We want to see you go up and, and, and be taken away like Elijah was. Go on, chrome dome, get away. You know, we don't want to hear what you've got to say. And they weren't just rejecting Elijah. They were rejecting God's messenger. They were rejecting God's message. They were rejecting God. A very dangerous thing to do. I think sometimes we fail to realize that God is sovereign. God is the wildest, freest, most dangerous being in the universe. He is also the wisest, the gentlest, the most compassionate, the most loving, and the most pure being. He condescends to us in covenant love and faithfulness. And His gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ 
is the most amazing, most magnanimous gift that we can imagine. You see, the kingdom of God, and I'm going to emphasize that kingdom, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's not a democracy. It's an absolute monarchy, a benevolent monarchy, but an absolute monarchy nevertheless. We don't elect God. God elects us. That's one of the foundational doctrines of the Reformed faith, the doctrine of election. We don't elect God. He elects us strictly out of His grace alone and not because of any merit, not due to any merit on our part. Jesus told His disciples, you did not chose me, choose me. You did not choose me. I chose you that you should go and bear much fruit. Malachi 6 says, In Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I, I, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? And in Malachi 3, 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And this is what Jesus said about Elijah, about uh, Yes, about Elijah. His disciples said, some people said, Elijah must come before the Messiah. And he said, yes, he's already been here. And he's talking about John the Baptist. And in chapter 13 of John, Jesus said, truly, 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 I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And that applies not only to preachers, it applies to every one of us who are in Christ. Because another one of the doctrines of the Reformed faith is the priesthood of all believers. In the early church, when the Christians at Jerusalem came under persecution, they scattered. And as they scattered into Samaria and Judea and the surrounding areas, they told the story as they went. They preached the word. They told the story as they went. So they carried the message and it is our responsibility to do likewise, to carry the message. But it is important to understand the gospel clearly so that we can represent Jesus faithfully. Um, a fellow by the name of Fred Sanders, not that Fred Sanders, um, wrote a book called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. And he said, a gospel which is only about the moment of conversion but does not extend to every moment of life in Christ is too small. A gospel that gets your sins forgiven but offers no power for transformation is too small. A gospel that isolates one of the benefits of union with Christ and ignores all the others is too small. A gospel that must be measured by your own moral conduct, social conduct, conscience, or religious experience is too small. A gospel that rearranges the components of your life but does not put you personally in the presence of God is too small. In other words, we can't have God's gifts without God. So let me share at this point some verses uh, with you from John chapter 15. This is one of the passages that, that uh, came to my attention while we were while I was preparing this sermon, and this is from 
uh, the passage of Scripture we call the Upper Room Discourse. This is Jesus' last night with His disciples. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit He prunes, that it may, be more, that it may bear more fruit. Uh, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father that is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And the writer Francis Schaeffer said about this verse, that in saying this, Jesus gave the world the right to judge whether we were His followers or not by our observable love for one another. Greater love has no one than this, and it's a sacrificial love that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed, appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide. So it's important to understand these things. Um, so when you speak with someone about the gospel, don't fret about their reaction, okay? God's got this. Their reaction is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to carry the message, provided you are, provided you are faithfully representing the Lord. You may be the only gospel someone ever sees. There's a, a quote that's attributed to St. Francis. It's doubtful that he wrote it, but I'm sure we've all heard it at one time or another. And it says, preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. You may be the only gospel someone ever sees. People may, people may not remember what you say, but they will remember what you do. And that is one of the reasons that we adopted the, the uh, hashtag line, Jesus every day. We live it out. We live into it, however you want to put that. We live it out every day. So faithfully represent Jesus at all times. Hashtag Jesus every day. And I have one more quote I wanted to share with you, uh, if I have time here. And it's from one of my favorite authors, a guy by the name of Brennan Manning, uh, who, is, who has gone to be with the Lord. But he says, uh, I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that He will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus, who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness, and at the same time an awesome, incomprehensible an unwieldy mystery. So in order to help us um, understand 
who God is and what He's like, um, I have a homework assignment for you. And uh, Steve Larson, another writer and pastor, said, who you believe God to be, what He's like, is the single most important factor in your life. And so I, I chose some scriptures, and I pray that you will either take out your phone and uh, take a picture of the screen, or there's some printed copies of this on the tables right back there at the, at the back of the room. And um, take that home, read those passages. It really lays out for us what God is like and what God has done for us that enables us to be even more like Him. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful to you for your presence with us here this morning, for this time with you, for this time in your word. Lord, and we say, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Son of God and Son of Man. Thank you for your life and your love. Thank you for your wisdom and your teachings. Thank you for your humanity and your divinity. Thank you for your perfect, perfect example of following the Heavenly Father's will. Thank you for the agony you endured, the blood that you shed, the death that you suffered in our place and on our behalf. Thank you for the power and the glory of your resurrection and for the sure and certain promise and hope of resurrection to eternal life with you. Lord, sometimes the troubles of the world seem to hem us in. Please give us always a conscious sense of your presence with us and help us always to carry the innocence of a child in our hearts. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life that we might live eternally with you and taught us to pray using these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.